Romans chapter 2, I'm going to begin reading uh, this week again, like we did last week, with verse 1. If you don't have a Bible, uh, there are some beneath the chairs in front of you in those little book racks. Feel free to take one of those and use it. Or the verses will also be displayed on the screen behind me. Romans chapter 2, beginning with verse 1. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? And we'll stop there for this morning. Now last week, we took a look at these first three verses, and we went through a bit of an exercise just to see If we could find some standard of morality or some standard of behavior that that might be acceptable to God, that we could live up to, and therefore would give us the right to judge people like those listed at the end of chapter 1. We looked at the Ten Commandments, uh, then we looked at the Sermon on the Mount, and finally we just narrowed it down to just looking at the Golden Rule. Now, if you weren't here last week, there's really not that much suspense. I mean, you can probably imagine this, but unfortunately, if we're honest with ourselves, we fail when we measure our lives against any of those standards. We still fall short. Consequently, Paul states in verse 1, Therefore, you have no excuse. And so certainly, that is true for us. And I hope you believe that Scripture is true, and if so, you know that that statement of you have no excuse is true, just on the basis of it being in the Bible, but then when you consider your own life, it proves that it's true. So if it is true, then it really is a fool's errand for us to continue to make excuses to God. But we seem to do that. However, every time we read in Scripture any descriptions of God's judgment uh, or His judgment before the presence of God, we'll say it that way, we see that the human response is always silence. Every mouth will be stopped. We'll see at that time the futility of debate. I mean, the discussion is over when God renders His final verdict. Because we know that his judgment will be according to truth, and yet here on the earth we continue to make excuses. So Paul says that you are without excuse, and we know from these verses last week there are some principles by which we are judged by God. And the first one we would call our knowledge. We're judged based on the principle of our knowledge. Verse 1 says, Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. So what do I mean by 
we're judged by our own knowledge. Well, the fact that we can judge others indicates that we have a knowledge of sin, of right and wrong. And that same knowledge is what condemns us because we do it too. If one has enough knowledge to judge others, he is thus self-condemned because you also would have enough knowledge to judge your own condition. And that's why Paul says you have no excuse. But that's not all. It's not just our knowledge. We're also judged according to the principle that we are, our judgment is based on truth. Verses 2 and 3, we know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O oh man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? So these verses tell us, it says in verse 2, we know, and the thing that we know is that God's justice is right. It says we know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice these things. And isn't that true? Don't we instinctively know that the things that God does are right? Now, we may not like them, especially when they convict us of the things that we do that are wrong, but we must admit, if we're honest, that we know that they are right. It's His nature. Everything that God does is according to the truth. And Paul teaches this in other places. In chapter 3, verse 4, it says, Let God be true, even though everyone were a liar. In chapter 9, verse 14, he says, What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. And not just Paul. David knew very well about the righteous judgment of God. In Psalm chapter 9, Verse 4, it says, For you have maintained my just cause. You, he's talking about God, have sat on the throne giving righteous judgment. Just a few verses later in Psalm chapter 9, verse 8, it says, And the judges, and he judges the world with righteousness. He judges the people with uprightness. So we know that we are subject to the judgment of God because His judgments are true. These first verses in Romans 2 are quite interesting to me. I think I told you that last week. And sometimes you just kind of stumble across a commentary that, or a book that puts everything into very clear focus. And Donald Barnhouse wrote such a commentary. It's called Expositions of Bible Doctrines. And one part of it is on God's wrath, and it deals with these verses here at the beginning of chapter 2, and particularly verse 3. And here's what he writes. This is a quote. You dummy, do you really figure that you have doped out an angle that will let you go up against God and get away with it? You don't have a ghost of a chance. There is no escape. Do you understand? No escape ever. And this means you, the respectable person, sitting in judgment upon another fellow creature and remaining unrepentant yourself. I mean, those few sentences really sum up what we were, I was trying to communicate last week, and that is we have no excuse. 
As we talked about last week, at the very end of the message, God's judgment of sinners is right and it's just. We deserve our judgment. Our sentence is guilty. But right at the moment, our punishment is to be announced. God puts forth his own son to take that punishment for all who will believe in him. In that way, guilty sinners are judged rightly by a holy God and then forgiven and justified by a merciful and gracious God. We're judged according to truth and we're justified according to grace. That brings us to the verse I want to look at today, verse 4. Let's read that again. Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? All right, so far, we've considered that man is judged on the basis of his knowledge, and that knowledge is demonstrated in the fact that we can see sin in other people. We should be able to see it in ourselves. We've noted that man is judged on the basis of truth. God judges rightly. That his justice is true and it is right. And now we come to this third element that we're going to kind of tease out over the next few minutes. And that is that we can see that God judges on the basis of a person's true guilt. And that guilt is common to every human being. Including the people like Paul is talking about here in chapter 2 who judge others and consider themselves to be innocent. So verse 4 is just really, it's a single interesting question. I don't know that I read it with the right tone to reflect that it's a question, but here it is again. Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? So the gist of the question is, are you going to presume upon this, not realizing what the purpose is? In my office, I have a few books on the attributes of God. Several of you probably do as well. It's a very popular thing to study. All of the characteristics of God. Each chapter is usually on a a separate attribute. And it's interesting, as I look through some of those books, I see very few, if any, chapters on forbearance and patience. Some Bibles, depending on which one you're reading from this morning, substitute words like tolerance for forbearance and long-suffering for patience. But I don't know, have you studied those qualities of God yourself? Why do we tend to ignore qualities like that in favor of ones that are more well-known, such as wisdom or power or holiness or something along those lines? And I think maybe the reason these attributes are easily ignored is exactly what Paul states here when he asks, do you presume upon the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience? One reason I think we don't think often of God's tolerance and his forbearance and his patience or long-suffering is our insensitivity to our own sin and our reluctance to turn from it. 
And the reason I say that is these qualities are set in relation to our sin. I mean, what do you think God is patient with or forbears against? It's our sin. Commentator Matthew Henry, very well-known Puritan commentator, famously wrote, There is in every willful sin a contempt for the goodness of God. That's that same type attitude as presumption. Do you presume upon the richness, uh, riches of his kindness toward us? But it's not just forbearance and it's not just patience. There's another quality listed there in verse 4. And that is kindness. So this morning, I want to look at all three of these with you. These three qualities. Kindness, forbearance, and patience. So we'll begin with kindness. Now this one is usually not ignored. We like to talk about kindness. God's kindness toward us. Because it's such a desirable aspect of God's nature. But Paul isn't really here speaking about the kindness of God as primarily having to do with what God is in himself, but rather he's speaking about God's actions toward us. And perhaps that's why translations like the one we read from this morning, the English Standard Version, uses the word kindness rather than Older translations like the King James Version use the word goodness. They're very similar. But again, we're not talking about as much a quality of his nature as the quality of his actions in this passage. And we can see this kindness or this goodness of God in so many places. The first one, I think, where we can see it is in creation itself. You remember back in Genesis that every time on each of the days of creation... After God created for that day, he said that it was good. I mean, the world around us is good. And this is great proof of God's goodness. Every time we breathe God's air, we demonstrate how indebted we are to his goodness. From the resources of the world to the wonders of the human body, God's creation is good. And the reason it is good is because God is good. So he demonstrates this kindness or his goodness to us in the blessings of creation itself. But that's not all. He also reveals this goodness or this kindness to us, to us by his providence. And that is, by providence, I mean this continued ordering of the world and its events for good. Theologians often refer to this as common grace, that grace of God that falls upon everyone. Jesus teaches on this in Matthew chapter 5, verse 45, when he, he says that God makes his son to rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. But you see, God's kindness and his goodness is not just demonstrated to us in physical creation and in the providential care of that creation. It's also manifested to us in spiritual matters. And above all, I think you could say that the one that we see 
we should be most thankful for is the widespread proclamation of the gospel. We see God's kindness in that. I mean, to be sure, the spread of the gospel may not be complete. I'm not advocating that it is. There are probably still millions of people who've not heard that Jesus loves them and has died for them. But you have. You at least know of God's goodness in the gospel. And so the kindness of God is not a small thing and we dare not despise it, presume upon it, as Paul says. So that's kindness or goodness. The second attribute in our text is forbearance. And as I mentioned earlier, we often neglect this one. We don't study it very often. If you look at the Greek word here, it can be variously translated as tolerance or forbearance or holding back or delay or pause or clemency. So the picture we have here is this. That is a, a human offense to God's goodness, a sin. And this offense should evoke an immediate outpouring of fierce judgment. But this offense, God patiently endures. That's a picture of forbearance. Here's how it looks for us. We sin, but God does not immediately implement the judgment that that sin deserves. He bears with us even enduring the affront, the offense to his majesty and to his holiness. And he offers us salvation. God's forbearance should lead us to repentance is what Paul is telling us here. Now, the last of these three on the list is perhaps the greatest because this is the attribute that is linked to a call for repentance. And that attribute is patience. Patience. Now, these all may seem very similar to you, so how can we define them and yet differentiate between them just a bit? And I want to use this, and I want to define these as aspects of God's goodness. So if we look at kindness first, or just goodness, depending on your translation in front of you, we can call that goodness to man without any specific relationship to sin, just general kindness. When we talk about the second of these, that is forbearance or tolerance, we can consider that God's goodness in relation to sin's magnitude. Our sin is so great that it deserves immediate judgment. But yet, God is rich in forbearance. The third is patience, or your Bible may say long-suffering. And that is God's goodness in relation to sin's endurance or frequency or continuation. You could say patience means that God bears with sin for a long time. So general goodness toward us, goodness in relation to sin's magnitude, and then goodness in relation to sin's continuation. God bears with us a long time. He is patient. 
And the Bible shows some examples of this patience. You may recall the great flood of of Noah, but what you may not understand is that God was very patient prior to that. It was a particularly evil time. You can read about it in Genesis chapter 4. And it's sort of summarized and reaches a climax in Genesis chapter 6, verse 5, where it says, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. What a devastating statement to make about mankind. Only evil continually. I mean, look at how extreme the whole statement is. Not just the intentions of his thoughts, but every intention of his thoughts was not evil, but only evil. And not just only evil occasionally, but continually. This was a dreadful age. And yet in spite of the greatness of, these, of this evil, God was patient with this generation of man He spared it for 120 years while Noah prepared the ark. And it was only at the end of that period, after warnings from Noah and from others, that the flood came. God was patient. A second example is Israel, the nation of Israel. And when we think about the nation of Israel and the exodus from Egypt... You almost feel sorry for God for putting up with them. He was incredibly patient. He was patient with them for 40 years. And Paul, and this is their time in the wilderness. And Paul reminds us of this fact in a sermon that he preached to the Gentiles and the Jews, basically, in Antioch. This is in Acts chapter 13 is where the sermon is recorded in verse 18 says, and for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. I, I like the language there. It's another way of being patient, isn't it? <laughs> Putting up with them. And that's what God did. Man, they were a bunch. Later, when they entered the promised land, it wasn't very long before they began following the customs and the worship of the pagan people around them. And God didn't immediately chastise them, did he? But he sent a long line of deliverers, judges, to rescue the people. And even when their sin was so great that judgment by invasion and deportment was inevitable, God still sent generations of prophets to warn both Israel and Judah to turn from their sin He's patient. But what about us? Arthur W. Pink writes this, How wondrous is God's patience with the world today. On every side, people are sinning with a high hand. The divine law is trampled underfoot and God himself openly despised. It is truly amazing that he does not instantly strike dead those who so brazenly defy him. Why does he not suddenly cut off the haughty infidel and blatant blasphemer as he did Ananias and Sapphira? Why does he not cause the earth to open its mouth and devour the persecutors of his people, 
so that like Dathan and Abiram, they shall go down alive into the pit. And what of apostate Christendom, where every possible form of sin is now tolerated and practiced under cover of the holy name of Christ? Why does not the righteous wrath of heaven make an end of such abominations? Only one answer is possible. Because God bears with much long-suffering the vessels of wrath fitted to destruction. Now that last phrase is from the book of Romans. We'll get to it. It's Romans chapter 9, verse 22. And I think this quote gives us part of the answer to why God endures our offense against His holiness. He does endure for a long time with those who eventually will perish. But if our text, which speaks so eloquently of the goodness and the tolerance and the patience of God, means anything, it's got to mean that God has another purpose in his patience. Paul says that it is to lead us to repentance. You see, there's a choice here. We began this particular verse by stating that we are judged on the basis of our true guilt. We are guilty. Verse 4 presumes upon that fact. We are guilty. So are you going to presume upon the kindness of God's forbearance and patience? You're guilty. But there is a choice. So which will it be for you? You can defy God. You can set yourself against His goodness and His forbearance and His patience as well as the rest of His attributes like His sovereignty and His holiness and His omniscience and His immutability and all these things that we despise about God when we're running from Him. But why should you do that? I mean, I can understand why a sinner who does not want to leave his sin must hate God's holiness. And I can see that someone who is going to rebel against God is going to reject God's sovereignty. But why would you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance, and patience, as the New International Version renders verse 4? Why would you show contempt? toward those things. These are winsome qualities. These are things we like in people. We like them in God, too. A kind and a tolerant and a patient God is a good God. Why should you fail to realize that God's exercise of these attributes toward you is for your good end? Let's consider that question. Why would a sinner do that? I don't like why questions that I don't know, that the Bible doesn't give a clear answer to. And usually when people ask me those, I let them know in no uncertain terms that I don't like why questions, especially why would God. Those are the worst, unless the Bible tells us why God does something. But this isn't that. This is why would a sinner do that? Why would a rational person despise God's kindness and his forbearance, and his patience. Well, first, let's talk about kindness or goodness. So first, if God is a good God, then whatever you may think to the contrary, due to your fallen state, 
To find this good God will mean finding all good for yourself. The problem is we don't think like that. Most of us think that our own will will be good. We think that if we have to turn from the things that we think that we want and desperately want, that we'll be miserable. If I have to give those things up, I mean, can't we see that it's our own sinful way and the way of millions of other sinful people just like us that is causing our misery? God isn't the cause. God is good. He is the source of all good. And if you want to find good for yourself as well as good for others, the way to find it is to turn from whatever is holding you back and turn to God. You see, God has provided the way for you to turn to him, and that is through the death of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. He died for your sin to open the door to God's presence. I read a story. This story was about a young teenage girl who'd gotten into trouble by basically rebelling against every authority figure in her life until she ended up in an institution for troubled teenagers. And she was having a rough time in there, so she was having to go to counseling. And in her counseling session, she said this, I learned that the people I thought were my enemies were actually my friends because they told me the truth. And I learned that my trouble was not caused by other people. I caused it. If I'm going to get anywhere, I have to change. You see, this teenager had become a lot smarter than Many people who fight against God by blaming Him for their misery. If you are to be wise and not foolish, you must allow the goodness of God to lead you to repentance. So that's kindness. Let's talk about forbearance. So if God is tolerant of you, remember we're talking about not immediately punishing you, It is because he has a will to save you. If he wanted to condemn you outright, he could have done it long ago. If he is tolerant, if he is forbearing, you'll find that if you come to him, he will not cast you out. One commentator put it this way, If God is good even to the unkind and the unthankful, surely the door of entrance to the divine favor is opened to the penitent. He has a will to save you. Finally, we'll talk about patience. So we've talked about kindness, forbearance, now patience. If God is patient with you in spite of your many follies, it is because he is giving you the opportunity to be saved. Peter wrote in 2 Peter 3.9, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. You see, if God were not good, you might have room to doubt this kind of a verse, this kind of a statement. You might think of God as just a 
cat playing with a mouse. He's going to kill it one of these days. Have you had a cat that's brought a mouse up to the back door for you? And then they play with it for a while until they play it to death. You might think of God as being patient with you only for his own amusement. But that's not the case at all. If God is good in his patience, then his reason for being so patient must be to do some good. His patience is to give you an opportunity to turn to him. As we close, I'm going to ask our musicians to return to the stage. I want to caution you on a couple of things. Do not make the mistake of thinking that because God is tolerant, because he is forbearing, that he will not judge sin. God will judge sin. It's just like the people here were asking and Peter had to answer. But for now, he is patient. And if he has allowed you to live for 20 or 40 or 80 or 90 years... It is so that you might come to know him now before you die and the opportunity for salvation is gone forever. Every day that we live, we should thank the Lord for being so patient and merciful with us, overlooking the many sins for which we, even his children, deserve his just punishment. So the question really isn't why do certain people suffer or die, but the, the more valid question is why does anyone live? It's because of the forbearance and patience of a kind and good God. Here in Romans 2, 4, Paul says that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. If he is leading you, he will not turn you away if you'll follow him. And if he bids you to repent, he will not spurn your repentance. So today, follow God's leading. Follow the leading of his kindness and come to him and repent. But also, do not mistake God's kindness for leniency or permissiveness. God is kind, but he's also severe. Wait until we get to chapter 11. When people sin... And when they appear to get by with it or to benefit from their waywardness, they're really following, falling into sort of a self-constructed trap. When they sin and they don't see immediate consequences, it does not mean that God does not see or that God does not know or that God does not care. It doesn't mean, as so many people assume today, that because God is love, that his wrath and judgment are old-fashioned and we can safely ignore them. No, Paul says God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. And he, he states it in the form of a question in order to express amazement that anyone could be that ignorant. Unless you think ignorant is too strong a word, the term not knowing in that verse where it says, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. That phrase, not knowing, translates to willful ignorance. The person knows, but he prefers some type of wishful thinking. So what about you today? 
And we'll close here. The choice is yours. You can despise the riches of God's, of God's goodness and of his forbearance and his patience. Or you can come to him today. It is only because of God's patience that you have another day to make that decision. Let's pray.